This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we're going to cover a couple of EM at 3 a.m. posts. And to help us, the stellar Rachel Bridwell is back. Rachel, you're now an attending and you're back from some interesting adventures in the Northern Arctic. Thanks for having me back, Britt. It's been way too long and I've missed you. Thanks for letting me broadcast dad jokes and sometimes talk about medicine. We're going to talk about two of Rachel's posts, which cover some deadly causes of sore throat. And just to prepare everyone before they listen, if you've ever met Rachel, it's really not possible to have a discussion without some sort of pun. Usually it's going to be this horrible dad joke. So Rachel, let's get to the case. I have my whitest new balance on, and I'm here to talk about long care. <laughs> a 23-year-old male presents for severe sore throat pain and cough. He states that his neck hurts, and he's noticed that the left side of his neck is red and painful. Review of systems is remarkable for a recent bout of pharyngitis that initially improved. Triage vital signs include a blood pressure of 91 over 49, heart rate of 130, a temp of 102.2, respiratory rate of 25, and a SAD of 91% on room air. He appears toxic. The ENT exam reveals a midline uvula, soft mouth floor, though a prominent generalized cervical, submandibular, and submental swelling with corresponding lymphadenopathy. He has no voice change and is tolerating oral secretions. His neck is red and tender with mild swelling over the left side of his neck and a painful tracheal rock. He is tachycardic and tachyptic with multiple areas of wheezes and ronchi. All right, so you're giving me a patient, sounds sick, definitely not our average sore throat patient especially with those external findings of the red, the painful neck, and he's tachycardic and tachypnic. Both of these make me much more concerned. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think this is Lemire syndrome, mainly because of those external findings. Let's start with some basics. What's Lemire syndrome? Who's going to be at risk? And what's the most common cause? So Lemire syndrome is a superlative thrombophilitis of the internal jugular vein. This disease is not named for any Budinovese character and is named for Anton Lemier, who published the first case series on this disease in which 18 of 20 patients died. This is predominantly seen in 15 to 24-year-olds with an incidence of 3.6 cases per 1 million person years, which is definitely my favorite unit of measure. While this disease is rare, there has been an increased incidence in the past 10 years with group A strep negative rapid testing, increased antibiotic resistance, and decreased rates of tonsillectomies. Infection spreads hematogenously from an oropharyngeal infection from the tonsillar vein, though rarely this can be secondary to lymphangitis. In terms of preceding infections, 37% of cases occur secondary to tonsillitis, while another 30% occur secondary to pharyngitis. Some more uncommon sources include mandibular fracture, so please be mindful in patients with recent facial trauma and Bartholin gland abscess with hematogenous oh, spreads <laughs> as loose lip sync shifts. While mortality was previously 90%, Early antibiotics and source control have decreased mortality to just 5 to 10%. Several potential sources here. Most commonly, it's going to be an oropharyngeal source. What sort of bugs are we looking at? I seem to remember a classic organism. The majority of infections are caused by oral flora. Classically, this disease is caused by Fusobacterium necroforum. Because I use the word classically, the stats hold up, and this Fusobacterium only accounts for 33% of infections. Other bacteria include staph and strep species, as well as Klebsiella and pneumonia. How about the presentation? Are we going to be looking for a classic triad? I'm glad you mentioned this, Britt, because there is, in fact, a classic triad. 
Sadly, it doesn't get an eponym, but the triad consists of pharyngitis, anterior neck swelling and tenderness, and non-cavitary pulmonate infiltrates. These patients often look very toxic. A differentiating factor from other lethal sore throat etiologies is this presence of cough as 97% of patients will have septic pulmonary emboli. 83% of patients will have fever, while nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain occur in close to 50% of these patients. The cough is a great pearl in a way that we can differentiate these from some other potential causes of these patient symptoms. What do these folks look like on our physical exam? Along with the red oropharynx, patients will complain of unilateral neck pain worse with movement. Overlying erythema, edema, or tenderness on the ipsilateral neck may be present in half of patients. Patients will often have bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy as well as torticollis because they're not ambiturners. On auscultation, wheezes, bronchi, or diminished breath sounds may be due to septic pulmonary emboli. Bacteria may embolize causing septic arthritis as well as cranial nerve palsies, which can be seen in 6% of patients. Based on this bad but wide, wide presentation, Lemieres is basically nectocarditis. Everyone, you just heard it first on the EM Docs podcast, nectocarditis. The key here is to think about this in that patient with pulmonary findings and the external neck features. What about our labs? What's actually going to help us? So there will be some leukocytosis with some possible thrombocytopenia. Interestingly, a third of these patients will have hyperbilirubinemia with elevations in liver-associated enzymes while up to half will have jaundice, which may be secondary to hepatosplenomegaly from high septic embolic burden. I would not have thought to obtain LFTs here, but that's actually something that's helpful. Now, most of the time, we're not going to be obtaining imaging for your run-of-the-mill sore throat patient, but this is one of those times where imaging is probably needed. What do you recommend that we order? Like a true ER doc, the CT is where you go. The ideal study is a CT neck with IV contrast, which allows for imaging of the clot and visualization of potential abscesses, as well as demonstrating intraluminal filling defects and peripheral rim enhancement. I would recommend extending this to the chest to assess for septic pulmonary emboli since they're present in nearly all of Lemire's patients. We'd lose our EM street cred and Dr. Myers would be very upset if we didn't talk about POCUS or rapid bedside identification. So POCUS has a reduced sensitivity from our recent thrombus formation. Additionally, point of care ultrasound cannot visualize retromandibular areas. Happily, no one has suggested MRI because that would be a terrible destination for these patients. All right, so I'm going to summarize what we have so far. This is potentially a super sick patient with a sore throat and a cough. We can use POCUS for the first glance, but for the definitive diagnosis, we need a CT of the neck with IV contrast to not miss anything and also to properly visualize the whole disease process. If you don't extend that CT down into the chest, then obtain a chest x-ray. Rachel, let's finish with management. What are going to be the key components? Ah, yes. TXA. Essence of thiamine, a diffuser full of vitamin C, an anecdotal based bezoar of magnesium, and just a handful of gilead. Oh, please no. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm just kidding. Do what EM clinicians do best. Resuscitate the septic patients according to the latest surviving sepsis guidelines. Finally, we are not handcuffed to 30 mils per kilo of fluids. Just how magical is that? Source control is the name of the game, and the ideal antibiotic regimens include ampicillin sulbactam and metronidazole, or clindamycin and metronidazole. Metronidazole is important because it provides better anaerobic coverage and tissue penetration for these very fragile patients. Additionally, speak with hematology. These patients may require anticoagulation. There's no consensus statement and no randomized control trials on safety, efficacy, or mortality for anticoagulation, and a recent meta-analysis did not demonstrate reduced mortality with anticoagulation. But there were some confounders with varying anticoagulation rates based on the side affected and the clot burden. 
Pulmonary emboli are the most common site for septic thrombi, though other organs include liver, brain, pericardium, muscle, and skin. So look for thromboembolic complications. 3% of these people will develop meningitis. Rachel, thanks for the great tips. Let's wrap up Lemire syndrome. So Lemire syndrome is superative thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein. The classic triad, yes, there's a classic triad, includes pharyngitis, anterior neck tenderness and swelling, and non-cavitary pulmonary infiltrates. But only about 50% of patients are going to have neck tenderness or swelling on exam. 97% of patients are going to have cough due to septic pulmonary emboli. Your imaging modality of choice is going to be a CT neck with IV contrast and then extend down to the chest to look for pulmonary septic emboli. Resuscitate like a pro and give ampicillin sulbactam and metronidazole. Finally, talk with hematology about anticoagulation. Britt, you ready for a similarly terrifying patient with similar complaints? Let's rip open a new case. A three-year-old male is brought in by his mother for severe throat pain and lethargy. She notes that he's playing less, refusing to eat, and prefers to lie flat. Review of symptoms is remarkable for a recent small fall with a toothbrush in his mouth. Triage vital signs include a blood pressure of 91 over 41, heart rate of 141, a temp of 1031, respiratory rate of 25, and a SAT of 96% room air. He appears toxic and is lying supine. The oropharyngeal exam is normal, but the patient has prominent generalized cervical lymphadenopathy, torticollis, and a painful tracheal rock. The patient has no voice changes, but does not want to extend his neck at all. He is tachycardic and mildly tachypnic, but his lungs are clear. This patient sounds sick like our last case, but in a little bit of a different way. In this age group, I'm definitely more worried about a retropharyngeal abscess. And you gave me that clue with a toothbrush and a fall. Let's start with the definition. An RPA is a life-threatening infection that occurs between the prevertebral fascia and the posterior pharyngeal wall, which can then spread to the mediastinum. Britt, this kid is toxic and not the Britney Spears kind. Oops, she did it again. Rachel, what are going to be the most common risk factors for RPA, and what sort of patient does this most commonly affect? Like Lemire's, RPAs have an increasing incidence over the past 20 years, with 4.1 cases per 100,000 patients under the age of 20. While it's more common in kids and young adults due to the larger retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which can develop into abscesses, this can also be seen in adults. Risk factors for developing an RPA include recent pharyngitis or posterior pharyngeal trauma, for example, fall with a pen or a toothbrush, or ENT procedures. Additionally, caustic congestions may put you at increased risk for RPAs. My last case was actually one of those more atypical cases. It was actually an 11-year-old female with lupus. She was on immunosuppressants, and she had been seen several times for a sore throat, but was now having severe pain and was not wanting to move her head or neck. What are the more common bacteria that we need to think about? So in contrast to classic bacteria in Lemire's, I can only hit above the Mendoza line in a good season. So there's not one particular bacteria that's commonly associated or classically associated with RPAs. These infections are often polymicrobial and predominant bacteria include group A strep, MSSA, MRSA, and then some mouth and respiratory bacteria such as Villanella, Prevotella, and Fusobacteria. Rarely you can see some gram negatives like Iconella, Bartonella, and Mycobacterium in some very sick patients. Yeah, you're right. A huge spectrum of different bacteria. Let's talk about our history and exam. Does this have a classic presentation that's worthy of a baseball Hall of Fame batting average? 
Along with sore throat, patients will present with fever, adynophasia, decreased oral intake, and voice changes. This classic voice change is called the Cree du Canard, so this may in fact help you duck out of a pimp question from a senior resident or staff. You don't want to goose any airway, but especially not this one. If medial sinal spread has occurred, patients may have retractions and chest pain. I'm not looking to chase you around the circle for the physical exam, but are there any features that are going to help differentiate this from some other conditions? We have a few clues. Because of the decreased oropharyngeal diameter due to retropharyngeal incursion, patients prefer to lie supine with their neck in extension. They may also demonstrate a completely normal oropharyngeal exam, so don't write these patients off just because you don't see anything in their mouth. Patients do complain of pain with tracheal rock, putting the patient between a tracheal rock and a hard place. They also have cervical lymphadenopathy, torticollis, and possibly trismus. I'm really glad you brought up that normal oropharyngeal exam. There is a differential for this that we need to think about when these patients present. You need to think about RPA, Lemire syndrome, epiglottitis, caustic ingestion, early Ludwig's, and a couple others, but those are going to be the major ones. How about labs? Well, as we all learned, leukocytosis is the uh, vestigial remnant of the intellectually destitute. However, (laughs) there is leukocytosis. Additionally, a CRP over 100 has been correlated with hospitalization. I do want to point out that the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio greater than 5.4 suggests deep neck space infection as compared to pharyngitis, which is interesting, mostly because we both love the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. This is definitely one of those markers of more significant physiologic stress, and it's going to be present in these patients. How do we best image these patients? We learned about those x-ray findings. Walk us through those in second. Is x-ray going to be enough? So x-ray is a great starting place, but probably not enough. So you start with this lateral neck x-ray, which is performed in extension on inspiration to present any pseudo-enlargement on imaging. This may demonstrate widened prevertebral soft tissue. The AP diameter of soft tissues along the anterior border of C1 through 4 should be less than 40% of the AP diameter of their vertebral body behind it, or C2 should be less than or equal to 7 millimeters. A CT with contrast to the neck has a sensitivity that ranges up to 100%, and can really help differentiate phlegmon versus abscess and provide information for operative planning. 21% of these patients will require a second CT to assess progression and aid management. I like your take on it. Start with that lateral neck x-ray to look for the widened prevertebral tissue and then move to that neck CT. How do we manage these patients? What are going to be the key components for us? First, optimal patient position of comfort is key for airway patency. Management of these airways may be challenging and require adjuncts. For source control, ampicillin sulbactam or clindamycin will cover oropharyngeal flora, though if there's concern for MRSA, add vancomycin or linazolid. Linazolid dosing, as a reminder, is 600 milligrams IV twice a day, though don't go hunting for serotonin syndrome. <laughs> Consider adding dexamethasone as steroids may decrease rates of surgical drainage. Also, make sure to speak with ENT for possible surgical management and source control. Factors suggesting surgical management include abscess with cross-sectional measurements of greater than two centimeters squared, for more than two days of symptoms. These patients are clearly uncomfortable, so please don't forget to give an analgesic. This is definitely one of those conditions where you want ENT on board early and keep that patient comfortable. Steroids are a key point for me with the recent literature that suggests decreased rates of surgical drainage. Let's end with some take-home points for RPA. An RPA is an infection between the prevertebral fascia and the posterior pharyngeal wall which can then spread via potential space to the mediastinum. It's more common in kids, but we can see it in adults. Consider this in a toxic child who wants to lie flat with a normal oropharyngeal exam 
and a painful tracheal rock. Lateral neck x-rays are a good screening tool and can be diagnostic, but many patients are going to need a neck CT for operative management. For treatment, start antibiotics and speak with your ENT colleagues. There are now data demonstrating decreased rates of drainage when steroids are used. Britt, thanks for having me back on the podcast. You and I have become quite the team for deadly sore throats. Always great to catch up, Rachel. Everyone, stay safe and see you next time.